Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are thrilled to bring back John Bolton. He appeared with us just a few weeks ago with his wonderful book, The Room Where It Happened. It is a controversial book. I guess, you know, I sold 12 copies, Ambassador Bolton, but I think you did out of the box 780,000 copies of your book. Did that statistic surprise you? Yeah, I would, thank you very much. I was uh, surprised at it, but uh, but I think, you know, this is a year when Trump books sell a lot. His niece's book sold even more. Uh, Bob Woodward has mm-hmm. a book coming out in September, and there have been plenty more besides. So there's there's obviously a big demand, but it was an enormous number. I was uh, very, very happy with it, that's for sure. In your book, I want to get to Belarus in a moment, which is the topic of the hand, but there is, and the reason you came on with us today, the legacy of Brent Scowcroft. I had a chance to interview him a few times. What a gentleman, what grace. Your study of that great moment where Baker and Scowcroft assisted President Bush in getting to the end of the Cold War, what did uh, the late uh, General Scowcroft accomplish? Well, he was uh, an amazing figure, and uh, I, I knew him during the Bush 41 administration. I didn't didn't know him during the the Nixon and uh, and Ford administrations, but but he was uh, really a dominant figure in policy. Uh, you know, beginning with uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion of uh, Kuwait in 1990 uh, and the liberation of Kuwait, the breakup of Yugoslavia, the, the breakup of the Soviet Union, the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, the end of the Cold War. I mean, it was it was busy back in those days. And, uh, you know, he was a very level-headed guy. And I think, uh, obviously, somebody that uh, George H.W. Bush knew very well, which is why he made him national security advisor. Are you confident that either party can get back to the grace of Brent Scowcroft after a given length of a Trump era? Well, I think it uh, gets harder and harder to do, which is one reason why, you know, for the first time in my adult political life, I'm not going to vote for the Republican nominee for president. I think we can correct what's happened after one Trump term. I'm very worried that, two, it might might not be possible to correct. He, he's not the only cause of the lack of civility, although he's made almost every aspect of it mm-hmm. worse. And uh, I, I just don't even know how, how Brent Scowcroft would react to, to the way it is today. What does Joe Biden need to do? to make it a one-term Trump? Well, I think he, he you know, uh, I'm not going to vote for Biden either, as I think I think we may have discussed before. Yes. But I think I think if he, uh, in the remaining days of the campaign, predict, pr- projects uh, even-handedness, steadiness, uh, courtesy, a sense of humor, uh, a lack of indictiveness, you know, be, being a normal guy would, would go a long way. I, I really do think people crave that. And I, I believe that even of many Republicans with whom I've spoken who will vote for Trump because they fear the left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, it's, they're, they're not happy about that either. And I think many of those people might yet vote for Biden if he, if he simply says, here are my ideas, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pursue them in, in what we used to think of as a, as a more civil fashion. So, Ambassador, give us just your sense of kind of where the whole feeling of internationalism is. It served the United States so well post-World War II in terms of defeating, uh, you know, winning the Cold War. But 
internationalism seems to really have taken a backseat in the Trump administration, whether it's NATO or the Trans-Pacific Partnership or other just partnerships around the world. What's your sense of where internationalism is right now? Well, I think Trump is an anomaly, uh, even within the Republican Party. And uh, one of the reasons I'm confident the damage he's done can be corrected is that there is no Trumpism. There is no Trump doctrine. There is no Trump philosophy. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why why it's so perilous to have somebody like him uh, in the White House. But it also means it's it's easier to, to police up after. There, there's just one idiosyncratic response after another. Uh, I would say, in fact, that even under Obama, there there was a fair amount of isolationism. I think Obama was, was over-focused on domestic issues, and I think uh, in too many cases, his idea of foreign policy was to leave it to the United Nations to engage in multilateral diplomacy for the sake of it. So I think America's got to pursue its interest. I think the, the right way to look at it, to summarize it very quickly, is in a Reagan-esque kind of way of peace through strength. Where do you think the biggest security issue is for the United States right now uh, as we kind of exit 2020? Well, I think uh, existentially, China is the main threat we face throughout the 21st century. I think Russia is also a strategic problem because of its uh, nuclear capabilities. I think the immediate problems remain, the threat of the proliferation of nuclear, chemical, and as we now understand better than ever before, biological weapons, uh, and international terrorism. These are problems we've had now for 20 years. They've changed their manifestations, but they remain threats to the United States. And I think the people ought to understand that as they as they look at this presidential race and the races for Senate and House. Too. If you're just joining us worldwide, John Bolton uh, with us, The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, his book. Uh, he joined us a few uh, weeks ago. We're thrilled he could come back and visit in remembrance of Brent Scowcroft. Uh, the script changes, Ambassador, and it changes to Belarus, you did what you do, which is you showed the flag. You attended uh, in Minsk that horrific Holocaust memorial, one of the most emotional uh, that's out there. And then you met with the leadership of Belarus. Folks, this is to get the map out. You go to Berlin, you go east to Warsaw, you bend to the north a little bit, and you go across a piece of land on the road to Moscow. Ambassador Bolton, how important is that piece of land of the United States this morning? Well, it's extremely important. I, I went to Belarus. I was the highest-ranking American to go there when I went in August of last year, I think in about eight years. Uh, and I did it not because I loved uh, uh, Lukashenko, the president and, and authoritarian figure there, but because I didn't want to see Belarus reabsorbed by uh, Russia into a into a latter-day uh, uh, Soviet Union. Uh, now we've seen this amazing election process there. The people are out in the streets. It looks so much like what happened in Eastern and Central Europe uh, and the former Soviet Union when the Iron Curtain fell yeah. uh, some years back. And it's, I think it's critical uh, that we do what we can to make sure the Russians don't intervene. You know, when I, when I went on to Warsaw, uh, for the for the anniversary of the Nazi invasion, the 80th anniversary, 
the Poles and the Ukrainians, and I give them both credit, arranged a four-way meeting of the national security advisors of their two countries, mm-hmm. the U.S. and Belarus. First time that ever happened. That's how important Belarus is to Poland and Ukraine, and I think therefore to us. Well, this is so important is it's buttressed up as a buffer almost between Russia and a NATO that expanded to the east to Poland. And, and how do we actually project this in the coming days? What would you advise Secretary Pompeo or even the president in discourse, in body language, to make clear to Mr. Putin that this is not some of the sad stories that we've seen over the decades? Well, I think uh, we've done uh, actually some good things with respect to Poland to strengthen our defense cooperation. I think we could do more with Ukraine. It's not a NATO member, but when George W. Bush was president, he tried to make that happen. The Europeans objected. I think the dilemma uh, right now with Belarus is I think we want to support the, the emerging Uh, view that we see it in the streets. The people aren't asking for anything extraordinary. They just want to be able to elect their own president. Uh, We ought to encourage that, but in a way that makes sure that uh, Lukashenko does not continue to ask Putin to step in, especially with military force. So it's a delicate moment. I think a strong statement to Putin, it can be done in private if that's the way to do it, that he needs to stay out of Belarus uh, is very, very important. Well, Ambassador, that goes to, I guess, the bigger picture is uh, give us your sense of what our position is vis-a-vis Russia here and how perhaps uh, our position should evolve, you know, over the next several years as it relates to Russia. Well, you know, it's uh, it, what Putin is doing is playing a weak hand very, very well uh, in trying to re-extend Moscow's influence in the territory of the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, while we've done a number of things in the past uh, three and a half years to push back on that. We have not done nearly enough, uh, not not least of which is the continuing concern about Russian interference in our elections, uh, where we've also taken steps, not not that Trump uh, accepted them easily. He he accepted them kind of complaining all the way. But uh, I I think uh, Putin is a classic case of an authoritarian leader who pushes until you push back at him. And then he'll he'll withdraw. So I think uh, just a stronger indication of how much we uh, prize our own elections and uh, and will take steps against foreign interference and and likewise in uh, Belarus. I was hoping for a Susan Rice vice presidential pick because um, Ambassador Bolton, that would have been a good theme to speak to you. We don't have that. We have Senator Harris uh, instead. But you think of a, a Biden foreign policy, and there's got to be a place there for uh, Ambassador Rice to participate, clearly with her you know, service to the, the cause over the last number of weeks. Susan Rice as a Secretary of State would be radically different than Secretary of State Pompeo. What kind of Secretary of State would she be? Well, looking at her record, uh, I think she'd uh, try and reverse a lot of what uh, I think the Trump administration did accomplish in the Middle East. I think her positions have been uh, strongly anti-Israel over the years. Uh, I think she clearly wants to revive the Iran nuclear agreement, uh, which uh, was a disaster in 2015, hadn't gotten any better with age. Uh, and if I were Israel, I'd, I'd be very worried. Now, you know, this is uh, this is going to be a problem for Biden, I think, because I don't believe those are his views. 
Uh, and and I think there's going to be if he prevails and becomes president, I think Susan will become Secretary of State. You know, I always root for former National Security Advisors to move up in the world, but uh, but I think uh, I think there's enormous tension within the Democratic Party. You know, the press likes to talk about divisions in the Republican Party on national security issues within the Democratic side. I, I think they've got big problems, and I think uh, Biden Biden's going to have some hard choices to make. Uh, Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us in memory of Brent Scowcroft today. John Bolton with a book out that's done uh, pretty well at the uh, stands here, The Room Where It Happened. Uh, John Bolton, thank you so much. Right now we turn to the markets and some really good research. So Michael Scholl. He's with Marketfield Asset Management, their chief executive officer and someone who looks cross-asset as well. Michael, thank you so much for looking at this recovery from March in the equity markets as compared to 1998, that August, the two August where we are right now, and also even back to December of 1987. Was it a correction? Was it a bear market? What was it we just lived through? I believe it was a correction in the bull market which started in 2009. I mean, you know, there's certainly at the March low, you could make an argument that that bull market died on its 11th anniversary. Um, but, you know, we, we came out of it um, extremely quickly, and we came out of it with, with very similar leadership. You know, technology was clear leadership going into it. Technology is clear leadership coming out of it. So, you know, certainly parts of the of the U.S. equity market, um, you know, I think were, were – you know, went into a secular bear market at that point in time, but it's really COVID-related equities which which went from right. bull to bear, and you know the bulk of the equity market is in bull. And in fact, interestingly, some of the cyclical stuff, which has really been uninteresting for you know several years, has started to look very interesting again. Oh, we've seen that in the railroads, and of course, small caps doing better as well. Michael, I look at this equity market. And I look at the commitment of people to it. And what we hear conversation after conversation is it's really not a, an enthusiastic market, that there's too many walls of worry out there. Do you agree with that assessment? I mean, certainly, if you, you know, it, I think sentiment measures are very poor given where the equity market is. I mean, we've seen worse sentiment measures over the years, but I don't think we've seen sentiment this low with the equity market this, this high. Having said that, you know, I think because passive investment has been so important for the last few, few years, I think people are committed, even if they're reluctantly committed. Michael, good morning. It's Anna here. Do we learn anything? If we look back at uh, LTCM and, uh, and the like, do we learn anything from these previous crises about, about the way this then goes? Because you've drawn this parallel. Yes, I, mean, I, I think that, that you know, central banks react. Um, and you you have a, a sort of general liquidation which you come out the other side of, and you tend you know and certainly in in the late eighties and and late nineties in both cases you had a narrowing of leadership and a, in the end a sort of excessive commitment of capital to what people thought worked so in the late eighties it was all about japan and and markets like Taiwan um you know that made highs that in japan 's case haven 't been approached ever since in Taiwan we finally made made that new high a couple of months a couple of weeks ago. Um, you know, and of course, in the late 1990s, I'm sure everybody knows, you know, technology came out and, and completely dominated. You know, that bull market pre-98, tech had done well, but it wasn't the only place where people wanted to be. So, you know, my, my feeling is that you do see now, again, a narrowing of leadership, an excessive commitment of capital to portions of technology, um, and perhaps a couple of other sectors 
you know, strangely enough, managed to jump on the bandwagon. As I think you know I'm quite bullish about precious metals. I think they have the ability to, to get on board or certainly are on board. And I actually think we're going to see a broadening. Um, you know, I think the physical global economy is going to do much, much better than the global services mm. economy. And, and I think that's, you're starting to see that play out in equity markets. And, wh and why is that supportive to precious metals then? Because, of course, gold's gone a long way up, Michael, because of fears about the global economy. But you're talking about what you're talking about, precious metals that are useful in industrial processes. Is that the, the distinction you're making? No, no. I, I, think, I think precious metals are very sensitive to global liquidity. And, and central banks are, are going to be in full emergency mode for the foreseeable future. Um, and even if we do get pickups and things like inflation and, and, and good data coming out of it, they say the physical economy, I think, is going to look is going to look OK. There's going to be so much COVID-related weakness in the, in the service economy and the prevailing unemployment rates are going to be so much higher than they were eight, nine, ten months ago that, you know, I, I think central banks are going to, you know, you know, are going to be doing more of what they're doing today. And, and that's that's really quite positive with precious metals. I, I think that's not that contentious. I think where I probably am more contentious is I think that the the industrial the industrial side of the commodity markets look like they can get going here, um, and that, that I'd say any kind of acceleration in the physical portion of the of the global economy, whether it's the U.S. housing market or the Chinese housing market or Chinese infrastructure spending. You know, I, I think that, that, that you're going to see, uh, you know, you're, you're going to see some of the industrial metals, um, you know, really hitch a, a ride on this very narrow precious metals rally that we've had so far. Michael Schull, do you assume the industrial recovery that you're suggesting is a recovery of concentration where we're going to see a lot of M&A activity, transactions and combinations because people are desperate to find revenue growth? Um, I mean, I think you might see some of it, but I also think that, that actually, as I say, physical activity is going to be okay. And it's going to be okay partly because of the disruptions of COVID. So we, we see it already, for instance, in the U.S. housing market. Anything housing-related is starting to accelerate. Even if people aren't buying new homes, they're renovating their, you know, they're renovating their existing homes. Um, and I think this is, this is going to be broader than just a, than, than just a U.S. story. So as I say, it, it, it's very easy to see the destructive impact of COVID. Um, it's very obvious. It's very real. But there has been a, a, a constructive impact of COVID as well. In other words, it's forced people to go out and, and spend on things that they, mm -hmm. they hadn't, necessarily expected to, yep. hadn't necessarily expected to spend on. No, that's very, very true. Michael Scholl, thank you so much for joining us today with Market Field Asset Management. Right now, Leslie Venjamuri joins. She's with Chatham House in London, but she is expert on Pabst Blue Ribbon in Milwaukee, and we're thrilled that she could join us uh, right now. What a strange convention, Dr. Venjamuri. I guess it's a non-convention, but it's not. I haven't asked this question this morning, so let me go to you with all your study of American politics. If it's not Chicago 1968 or Harry Truman 1948, what is Biden 2020 going to look like? Well, you know, it, I, I have to say, Tom, I think it's, it's actually a very exciting convention, it's, it, it's specifically because we kind of don't know what to expect. We've always known for the, you know, for the last long period who's going to be the candidate coming, coming out of, uh, of any convention. But this is going to look very, very different. And I think, you know, the lineup is, is interesting. I think the goal, of course, is to get voters excited 
um, about this ticket, the Biden-Harris ticket, rather than just being driven by, you know, voting against uh, the sitting president. Um, but the lineup, you know, from Michelle Obama, Bernie Sanders, John Kasich, Andrew Cuomo, I mean, you can see that the drive is really to to unite the party, to bring in the young and progressive voters, also to, well, you know, create an opening for those who, uh, from the Republican Party, who might want to vote Democrat. Uh, so it's, an, it's going to be a very well, interesting few days, even if not surprising. This came up this weekend, and, you know, within my amateur take, uh, Leslie Venger-Murray, it's simple. They have to get out the vote. How do they get the youth of America? Many are so upset with President Trump. How do they get them to actually show up and vote? You know, I think there's um, there is a drive. Obviously, this is a real concern. Um, but the young people have, as we know from the data, they've been hit hardest by unemployment. They've been hit hardest by school closures, by online education, by the uncertainty uh, that's facing them in September as they look to go back to campus or not. So I think that there is a lot of any energy there, and it really is about inspiring them to turn up and to put that vote forward. Um, uh, you know, President Trump is trying with his play to uh, deferring student interest rates on student loans. Um, but the Democrats have this challenge, and that is really going to be a, what a lot of the next four nights are about. And I think that's why we see Bernie Sanders having a very important role um, at this convention, because, of course, he's been uh, very much liked by a lot of young voters. Um, and, and he's not the only one. So I think that that is a real, mm. a very genuine concern. But remember that young voters don't face the health constraint, right? They don't. They aren't as worried about being hit by the actual virus. Um, what, you know, there are concerns. They don't feel them to the same degree. Uh, so they're more likely in that sense that they can be inspired to, to actually turn out and take the risk of voting. Yeah, I mean, some minority groups might uh, feel more vulnerable and perhaps that might be a, an issue for the Democrats. Leslie, good to speak to you today. Just crossing the Bloomberg, uh, mixed signals from the president this morning in terms of his mood towards China, as Tom says, praising what they're doing on, on agricultural products, but then going so far as to say that Huawei spies on the United States. He also made the point over the weekend that the Democrats haven't said much about China. Will they be pushed by the DNC to comment on China or are they trying to stay away from that subject? I mean, I think right now so much of the focus is going to be on what is happening at home in America. It's about the concerns over um, trying to obstruct the actual voting, about the postal service, it's about the pandemic, it's about unemployment. Um, but China, of course, is the ongoing foreign policy concern for the United States. The Democrats won't be seen to look um, weak or soft on China. Uh, I think they will rise to that challenge. But I think really the focus is going to be primarily on the domestic agenda. <clears throat> Leslie, I, you know, I, again, China seems to be the only bipartisan issue that's out there as well. Will a Biden policy be that different from a Trump policy, not in discourse, not in heat, but in final outcome with China? You know, I think one of the key differences is that a Biden administration, as we know, is going to turn up in Europe and, and ask the Europeans to line up, to ask the U.K., which is an easier ask right now because the U.K. is moving its position, um, but to look across Europe and to say, let's take a unified approach towards negotiating and playing a tough card with China on its economic agenda. Um, but I think it will dial down some of the focus on tariffs, um, and on the tariff wars, and actually look at a much broader set of questions that are 
concerns, you know, across both sides of the mm-hmm. aisle, but that haven't really been the focus of the Trump administration's pressure on China. Dr. Vinja Murray, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Leslie Vinja Murray is with Chatham House. Right now in the pandemic, and this is wonderful because we get away from virology and epidemiology over to the idea of policy. She's at the Duke Margulis Center for Health Policy and their deputy director, Marta Voshinska, joins us uh, this morning. Marta, it's a silly question, and I don't mean to be smart about it, but what's changed in the last six weeks in our knowledge of where we're going? What's the new of where we're going in this pandemic? Well, for one, we have had rapid, rapid increase in the number of cases. Really, when we were um, earlier in the summer, I don't think anybody anticipated the amount of spread that might occur between now and before schools were going to open. I think when we were thinking back early in the summer, we really did think that we might be able to uh, reopen schools because we did think that there's going to be some control over this epidemic. But in the meantime, we have had just rampant spread um, in in this country. If you look at Europe, I I believe in Great Britain, um, they have about maybe a couple of days ago, 13 million cases uh, per, uh, 13 cases per million. The United States right now has about 160 cases per million, and that's on on, uh, across the country. Uh, and some states have um, right. much, much more. So we, we've sort of really started to lose control over the situation, which is um, really disconcerting. Well, that's right where I wanted to go. Marta, well, what I notice here, and I guess it's part of the generation, is I measure the Vietnams. And we're coming up on three Vietnams of death since, I guess, March, maybe February as well. That's an extraordinary scope and scale. And I say this with immense respect for the sacrifice in Vietnam and what professionals are doing now. Do you just extrapolate out that this nation at some point will have four Vietnams of death? I mean, in many ways, we probably might already have more because it's difficult to measure excess deaths. The deaths that we have are actually confirmed cases, um, and so there might have been uh, many more. Excess deaths are significantly higher, um, and uh, we're not done with this. I mean, we still have uh, a long way to go, and we have winter coming up, um, and that's uh, this is going to uh, we're going to lose a lot of American lives, unfortunately, in this pandemic. And in the meantime, good morning to you, Marta. In the meantime, we hope for a vaccine. We we watch closely all the headlines around vaccines from wherever they come in various parts of the world. Is there any way to know how long protection from a vaccine will last other than just allowing a vaccine to run its course? Is there any way to answer that question uh, and, uh, unless we just test it and wait? Until we test it and wait. That's how you answer the question. So when uh, we do um, see a vaccine uh, available, we will know how much um, of an immune response it will generate initially, but we're not going to know really how long the protection lasts. That will have to continue to be studied. If we want to have a vaccine really soon, we're going to have partial answers and to how effective it is. We will know that it can protect you in the short term, but we don't know for how long. And frankly, I mean, we're doing- What should the rollout strategy be for- I was just going to ask you about the rollout strategy. When we get a vaccine, I know we're not there yet, but if we do, when we do, let's be hopeful. What should the rollout strategy be? Should it focus very much on healthcare workers to start with? What is the best way to provide the most protection and to stop the transmission, to to kind of cut that path? 
Yes, so you will need to identify the highest risk uh, uh, populations, and it might include healthcare workers, uh, especially healthcare workers with uh, underlying conditions, or for that matter, pregnant healthcare workers who are also at high risk, and, and other population, populations that are at high risk, and they will be the priority. And it really will be necessary because to <clears throat> produce the number of doses of the vaccine that we will need is just really tremendous. So you and I are likely not going to be vaccinated until the spring, perhaps summer, mm -hmm. but we're hoping that uh, the vaccine will be available this winter and we'll start be able to be able to vaccinate uh, high uh, risk, uh, high priority individuals then. Dr. Vyshinska, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. With Duke Margulis uh, Center there on health policy uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.